Please pray with me. Father, we thank you um, that we can call out to you through the King of glory and the King of grace that, that one with himself cannot die. That the stain of our sin can be forgiven. That the gospel can be truly good news even in the hardest of times. And we, we lift up Pastor Dave to you who's who's grieving the loss of his father, but also celebrating the sweetness of the gospel. And we we thank you that even in the darkest times there can be a sweetness because of the good news that our sins can be forgiven through Jesus Christ our Lord. God, we pray now that your Spirit would Reveal to us truth through your word. Truth about Jesus, your son. This king of glory and of grace. Draw us to yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, I was watching an interview. It was some late night talk show. And the host wasn't important. The guest was important because the guest was Bono. Bono, the lead singer of U2. If you don't know, this is like the coolest guy that's ever been alive during my life. He, uh, he's done a ton of charity work in Africa. He's, he sells out stadiums at the drop of a hat. Uh, the iPhone has a unique color because of Bono. When you influence the color of an iPhone, you're, you're cool. And he's Irish. And so it just does, he, he's the complete package. And um, so the, the, the gentleman interviewing Bono asked him a, a, a great question that I don't think we consider. They said, you know, because Bono at the time had a teenage daughter. They said, Bono, does your daughter who's a teenager know that her dad is cool? He said, no. No, she doesn't. And she, like, his daughter isn't listening to Joshua Tree thinking, oh man, my dad's the greatest. She's not, she probably doesn't have, the streets have no name as her ringtone. There's probably not a poster featuring her dad in the edge. Um, She's missing out on this. And she misses the point that her dad is cool and probably thinks people like me are bizarre for thinking he's cool because he is her dorky dad. And for us people who see Bono as unapproachably cool and famous, um, it would seem strange to her who sees him as dorky. And we can't seem to come together on that issue. Well, I, I bring this up because if we're not careful, our... Our Christology can, can grow to just as imbalanced as my view of Bono. And here's what I mean. I'm, I'm going to borrow an analogy I, I recently heard and, and tweak it for this morning. Imagine we're flying in a plane, and, and we are flying between two mountains. And one mountain is Jesus in his unapproachable glory. And the other mountain is Jesus as as the humble teacher in Galilee. 
as, as, as fully human. And if one wing falls off our plane, then we will turn and crash into the mountain of Jesus' unapproachable glory. And there, we will be afraid to approach Jesus. And if we can't approach Jesus, how are we ever going to approach God the Father to whom Jesus is the way, truth, and life? No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. And if we can't get to Jesus in his unapproachable glory, then we'll never get to the Father and there's no hope. And if the other wing falls off our plane, we'll come over and we'll crash into the mountain of Jesus, who's this humble teacher. And really, he's just like us, but a little better. And if we crash into this mountain, then we miss the significance of Jesus also being, by the way, fully God. And he's no longer the substitutionary atonement for our sin. He's no longer unique. He's no longer Lord. He no longer holds authority. Instead, he's made into an example. And so we need both wings of the plane. As the song we just sang, we need that he is the king of glory, but we also need that he's the king of grace, that he's our, our humble shepherd king. And it can be very hard to keep both wings on the plane, so to speak. And it can be very difficult to balance that. And this morning, we're going to look at, as, as we continue in this knowing Jesus, we're going to look at Jesus as our great high priest. And uh, I forgot to silence my phone today. None of you could hear the Nebraska fight song, but I could. Um, <laughs> I, I usually leave that in my office. I, <laughs> I could not ignore that. Um, please, nobody call me. Um, I could see the twinkle in a couple sets of eyes from way up here. Uh, please, nobody call me. Um, <laughs> wow. This morning we're looking at knowing Jesus as our great high priest. Um, this, the title of great high priest for us believers who are not under the, um, who, who are under the new covenant and are not as familiar with the old covenant, great high priest sounds a little too high churchy. It sounds a, a, a little too Old Testament-y. Um, but as we look at the high priest, what the high priest was supposed to be, uh, Jesus' fulfillment of that to being the great high priest. Hopefully, as we see that, both wings on our plane will be firmly affixed so that as we fly, we are balanced between the two peaks of Jesus' glory and his humility. And as we see high priests, that, that the balance of that will come into focus for us. Uh, in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews from, from chapter 4, verse 14 to 5, 8, describes Jesus as our great high priest. This is a unique emphasis on the power and the royalty of Jesus. And within this section, in, in verses 5, 1 to 2, there's a description of what the high priest, of what every high priest was supposed to be. And as we look at what every high priest was supposed to be, 
It only pushes us towards Jesus as the great high priest. He's the epitome of all of this. So as we look at the summary of an ordinary high priest, the great arrow pointing us to the majesty and humility of our great high priest Jesus helps us to see this. So in light of this passage, um, I hope we can see that understanding Jesus, and if you're taking notes, here it is, understanding Jesus as our great high priest helps us balance his majesty, and his humility. If, if you have your Bibles open to Hebrews 5, and I hope you do, let's read these first couple verses here. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Understanding Jesus is our great high priest helps us balance his majesty and humility by revealing him as our chosen mediator. What does it mean that, a, that any high priest was chosen? Well, the first high priest was Aaron, and after him his son. So, and God selected Aaron as high priest. God chose Aaron. And in a way, when God chose Aaron, he chose the whole line of high priests. Because the high priests had to be able to trace back their lineage to Aaron. And they had to say, look, Aaron's my eighth great-grandfather, or whoever, however that works out. They had to show that they came from Aaron's line. Out of all of Levi, that they could go back to Aaron. But as you can imagine, over time, those who could draw their line back to Aaron became quite a few. This, this, this line got broader and broader. So then you have, you might come to a point where you have a hundred guys in the room all claiming Aaron's their grandpa. And they're all right. So then what do you do? Well, one of the things they would do then is they would cast lots as a, as a way of saying, to whom this lot falls is who God wants. And they would, they would put it, try to put it in God's hands in that way. And so they would cast lots. But with Jesus, Jesus being chosen as a high priest is a bit different. If we, now, we're, we're looking at these first two verses, but we're going to look around them as well to define what we mean here. So in verse 5, it says, um, I'll start in verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself, speaking of high priests, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, verse 5, Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus was appointed by God as high priest. God had this plan, Paul says, from before time began. And as before Aaron was anointed and the people realized through the law what that meant, God had said to Jesus, even before Aaron was chosen as high priest, God had said to Jesus, this all points to you. You're going to be the great high priest. Aaron is a shadow of you. And through Israel's history, there were good high priests 
And there were also high priests who sought the position for their own comfort, for their own glory, for their own power and prestige. But Jesus did not seek this role. He did not seek this out for his own fame. Instead, the role, the responsibility, and the tasks were given to him by the Father. And also, unlike the priests before him, who was as good as they may have been in one way, shape, or form, they were all flawed. Jesus is perfect, but also unlike them, Jesus' priesthood has no expiration date. In Hebrews, Hebrews 7 Verse 23, uh, it says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They, had, they all had an expiration date. But he, Jesus, holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus' priesthood will never expire. And his, his priesthood is able to save to the uttermost. Because the priests, we'll get into this in a little bit, would make sacrifices for the nation that they were priest over. But since Jesus' priesthood never, never falls, his sacrifice never falls either. And so Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. This is really good news. Because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was not just for those who were alive at the time. And it wasn't just for their children and grandchildren. And this morning we have the Lord's table set before us to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. And, and it's such good news. That as His priesthood does not expire, so His sacrifice does not expire and being saved to the uttermost includes us. It includes those in the Middle East and North Africa who the, who the four ladies we prayed for are getting ready to minister to, in a way. That it has no boundary. It has no time limit. The scope of Christ's priesthood encompasses time and boundaries. It has no limit. Jesus' priesthood, you know, it, it, it's not just that He's chosen, it's not just that it, that it has no expiration date, but there was a task to it. Every priest is chosen from among men as an, and is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. The function that a high priest had was greater than any of us pastors. We pray for you. We try to share life with you. We try to teach you as best as we're able from the Word of God. We try to instruct you. We try to support you. We will never mediate for you on behalf of God. While it is good and healthy to confess your sin, you do not need to confess your sin to us in order to be forgiven. You don't need to present your offerings to us in order to be forgiven. Jesus is that high priest. 
You go to Him for forgiveness of your sins. While we advise and shepherd, we are not your mediator to God. The priest entered the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people. The priest presented sacrifices daily and annually and monthly and all these different celebrations through the year. The priest did that. But you yourselves, if you're believers, are temples of the Holy Spirit. You're temples of God. We're in the Holy of Holies together. When the Holy Spirit comes in, you're part of the Holy of Holies. We don't need that priest anymore. Jesus is that priest. We don't need someone to enter the Holy of Holies because Jesus is there for us and He he brings us into that. Thanks be to God that through Jesus we can have that relation with God that He does act on behalf of us in relation to God. He makes that relation with God possible and he makes it open. So we don't have to sit outside of a tent. We don't have to sit outside of a building wondering what's going on inside anymore. But that he brings us fully into it. Jesus came as the chosen great high priest to act on behalf of us in relation to God. He instructed in the law in his teaching ministry. He took worship and the temple very seriously. And he offered a sacrifice. Seeing Jesus as our great high priest helps us balance his majesty and humility by not only revealing him as the chosen mediator, but also revealing him as the holy sacrifice. Verse 1 of chapter 5 ends that that this high priest offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. And there were, in the law, there was a variety of of different sin sacrifices that took place. If you do this sin, you do this sacrifice. And these were done on a daily, weekly basis. But one one of the great responsibilities of the high priest fell on the Day of Atonement. This was a big deal. This was an annual Day of Atonement. And, and, and how it would work is that the priest would, he would offer a bull for his sins, for the sins of his family, for the sins of the other priests. There would be this bull that would be sacrificed, and then there would be two goats. And one goat would be sacrificed in a very traditional way as a burnt sin offering for the sins of the people. And then there was another goat. And the priest, after going in to sacrifice for his own sins, repenting of his own sins, repenting of the sins for his family and for the tribe, and and dealing with all of that, and and going through the sacrifice, which, which took a long time. Bulls are not small. It was a messy sacrifice. Then he would come out, and he would sacrifice the goat, and then he'd come out to the living goat. And in front of everyone, he would place his hands on that goat. And he would start confessing the sins of the nation. God, we have not honored the Sabbath. God, we have sought 
other means for our provision. We have not prayed only unto you, God. We have not been good in our marriages. We have been lustful. God, we have not cared for the sojourner and we have not cared for the foreigner. We have not cared for the vulnerable. God, we have taken advantage of them. And he would start confessing the sins of the whole nation and everyone hears this. And you can imagine, uh, there's, a, there's a teacher named Colin Smith, and he, he, he describes this very well. He says, you can imagine being one of the crowd, and the priest has his hands on this goat, and he's confessing the sins of the nation, and you're sitting there thinking, oh, I did that. That's my sin that's being confessed. I've been lying. I've been covetous. My sin is being laid upon this goat. And when the priest would finish praying, you can imagine this would be a long prayer. And maybe there's people weeping because their sin is being mentioned. Maybe the priest is weeping because some of his sins are being mentioned. That He's he's drawn out of his own personal experience for this sacrifice and his own personal sin. And then the goat walks out of the camp by itself, out of the city by itself, into the wilderness, to never be seen again. And all their sin that's laid on that goat, that goat that's carrying the burden of their sin, walks into the wilderness to its destruction. And you can imagine the great high priest, or or not the great high priest, a good high priest. Would, would, Pray these sins and and proclaim these sins on this goat with compassion, knowing his own weakness. But even after that high priest would make those sacrifices, and I imagine that Day of Atonement was a memorable one, and it would stick with them probably for a couple weeks even, and just hang with them. But you know what that high priest would have to do the next week? He would have to offer more sacrifices for his own sin and not just the sins of the people. In Hebrews 7, if we can skip up again just to to verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who's this great eternal high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above all of the heavens, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus didn't have to offer sins for, offer any more sacrifices. Because he wasn't sinning himself. So his one sacrifice, his holy, complete sacrifice, we'll see in the coming weeks that Christ's sacrifice that's once and for all was able to fully appease God, which which bulls and goats couldn't do. They put sin on hold, but he offered for one time a sacrifice for all sin. His atonement is without border. As we said earlier, it is without expiration. So 
So he offers a sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. But if we go, to, if we go back to chapter 5 and we look a little further down, we're going we're to look at verse 9. Verse 7 and 8 describe his sacrifice, his suffering. Verse 9 says, In being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. To whom? To all who obey him. This is a hard phrase. Because it doesn't sound like faith alone, grace alone, that we, that we correctly shout out that we're saved by faith alone. It sounds like there's a contingency. It, it sounds really important. And this phrase is also why we're going to spend a significant portion of this year going through Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. Our obedience to Christ matters. It doesn't save us, but it matters. Remember in the Great Commission? Go make disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them what? Not just teaching them what I've commanded, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. Jesus told the disciples, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Our obedience does not save us. It does not contribute to our salvation. But our obedience plays a big role in the ongoing process of sanctification and becoming more holy. It's, it's a lot of what Paul's talking about when he says to continually work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Our lives matter. It, phrases like this in Scripture, salvation for those who obey Him, correctly point out that the words Jesus is Lord are not an incantation that saves us. It does away with the, how many times have we heard someone say, if you just repeat after me these words, you'll be saved and go to heaven and you'll have nothing to worry about. No, you actually need to make Jesus Lord of your life. It's to say, Jesus, you are Lord. The fact that you died on the cross, that you rose again, it changes me. And if I'm going to say, Jesus is my Lord, and then go through life like he's not, then guess what? Jesus probably isn't my Lord. We can't just say words. Our hearts and our lives matter, and the obedience to Christ is proof is proof that He is Lord of our life. The Christian life, according to Paul, is one working out our salvation in fear and trembling. And if, and if I'm going to participate in the confession of Jesus as Lord, then it's going to change my life. Because God is, our salvation doesn't start when we die. God is not just living, is not just the God of the dead. He is the God of the living and the dead. And it also reminds us of the truth that, that God doesn't just look at the outward appearance. He doesn't hear words and think, oh, they said the right words, I'm fine. God looks at our heart. And I, I try not to put too much stock in outward actions. But the outward actions will reveal our heart. God looks at our heart and He cares about our heart. 
And so to live as Jesus' Lord means every day we're becoming more and more like Him. We are walking closer and closer to Him. And sometimes it feels like we take steps back, but if you look over the course of your life, hopefully you see a trajectory of, I am, I am, I am closer to God than I was three years ago. I am walking more with the Lord than I was two years ago. And hopefully you can see that. And this is hard. Obeying Christ means, means giving up a lot of what we want to do in our own lives. But thankfully, when we see Jesus as our high priest, we don't just see His majesty as the chosen mediator and as the holy sacrifice, but we also see the approachable humility of a gentle teacher. And Jesus is our gentle teacher. And I'm so thankful for verse 2 in Hebrews 5. That here, here's what a high priest can do. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. You remember back at the beginning we talked about these two mountain peaks and through chosen mediator and through, uh, through holy sacrifice you might feel like our plane is getting dangerously close to the unapproachable glory of Christ. And it is, but I feel like that's, that's the correction we need. It's really easy for us to say, oh, Jesus is this great guy. You know, we have him in the robe, sitting on the rock, everyone just sitting pleasantly around him. And we... Sometimes we get so fixed on that that we miss the glory. But here in Gentle Teacher, our plane is going to come right back to the middle. The priest can be gentle with those who are struggling because he himself is weak. That high priest on the Day of Atonement, he comes out and he's not, he's not praying over that goat, thinking, oh God, these are a bunch of sinners. Look at that guy, he's awful. That kid lied last week. You know, the, the high priest isn't, isn't confessing sin like that. The, good high, the bad high priest might be. The good high priest for the, for the first covenant believers was... was very much participating, saying, God, this is our sin, and he's broken over the people's sin because he's broken over his own sin first. We have a great high priest. Not just a good one, we have a great one. Back in Hebrews four fourteen, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Unfortunately, I'm sure there were many throughout Israel's history who had a high priest who was not able to sympathize with them, who either thought he was too good and was borderline without sin himself, or When they came longing to hear from the word of God, they had a high priest who would lead them towards other gods. But we have a great high priest who, 
is fully able to sympathize with us and who is fully holy and without sin himself. And you might be thinking, how can Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, empathize with my weakness? How can the Son of God, who is without sin and who is fully unable to sin, how could he possibly know the weight of sin and temptation? If sin itself was not a possibility for him. This is a common objection. And I want to walk you through my rebuttal to this objection. That Jesus couldn't know the weight of our sin if he wasn't able to sin. One, he was fully human. He knew hunger. He knew heartbreak. He knew grief. He knew exhaustion. He knew sadness. He knew limitation. He certainly knew the weight of the sin of the people around him. He was hurt by other people's sin, by their lack of faith, by their deceit, by their betrayal. He still never sinned. We know that. And we also know that Jesus was tempted. And I'm just going to throw out to you the possibility that Jesus was tempted more than three times. Because here's what happens. We read through the Gospels, we, and we see these little headings above the verses. Just gonna, this, this might just shatter your world. Those headings are not inspired. If that's really hard for you, Austin's office is open all week. <laughs> Those headings are not inspired. But what happens is we're reading, we get to Matthew 4, we see the temptation of Jesus. And we read it and we think, boy, my temptation seems to last a lot longer than those two minutes. I'm going to throw this out to you. We know that Jesus was tempted more because when Peter said, oh, Jesus, you don't die. We're going to, we're, we're, we got your back. What did he say? Get behind me, Satan. So we know that Jesus was tempted in other ways than just those three. The other thing is Satan himself appeared to attempt to tempt Jesus. I know you guys, I know me, we get tempted and it's a big deal. When temptation comes, sometimes it comes strong and it feels like there's no way out. I'm just, I don't know about you, I've never had Satan himself appear to tempt me. Like I've never had Satan himself stand before me and be like, hey Chuck, what about this? Because it doesn't take that much for me. Maybe it takes that much for you. Maybe you should be preaching instead of me. It doesn't take that much for me to sin. For me, it's like when I tell myself I shouldn't have, like, Chuck, you got to cut back on desserts, but cookies. <laughs> you should cut back on sweets, but did you see that cake? Because that, and that, that place has ice cream and it comes in a cone. <laughs> it doesn't take much for me. I also know this, the times where I have resisted temptation, the longer I resist, the more that burden grows. Have you guys felt that? The more you resist temptation, the more it increases. So imagine this, Jesus never sinned. And he was tempted. Which means, for me, as I think this through, every time he was tempted... He felt the full weight of that temptation. It wasn't like Jesus was was passing 
the cookie jar with the, with the Tupperware lid on tight so no odor could escape. And he just saw a chocolate chip and was like, oh, better have it, you know, and, and he dove right in. It was like Jesus walked through the bakery. Jesus felt the full weight of temptation every time. He didn't sin, but as he felt the full weight and he watched the people around him sin, his empathy grew. So when we come to our great high priest and we're ignorant and we're wayward and we're wandering around and we can't seem to do the right thing and we wouldn't know what the right thing was if it hit us in the face... Jesus isn't wagging his finger at us. He's not up there saying, you idiot. No. No, he is the fulfillment of this. He deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. He empathizes with us. So let's take a look at the Gospels. How does Jesus empathize with the wayward and the ignorant? Well, look at his disciples. He called Matthew a tax collector, someone who made his living ripping people off, who had turned his back on Israel to support Rome. And he walked up to Matthew and he said, follow me. And then he sat at the edge of a well with a woman who had been married five times and was living with someone else who wasn't her husband, who had kept trying over and over again to go to the world to quench her thirst instead of going to God. And Jesus said, I know your sin. This is exactly who you are. I'll give you water that will make you never thirst again. And she felt so encouraged by that that she went and told the whole town, hey, there's a guy that knows everything I did. you got to come meet him. And then we have Zacchaeus, another tax collector, who rips off people constantly, who rips off the vulnerable. And Jesus said, hey, I'd like to come and eat with you. And then we have the woman that was caught in adultery, that the, that the teachers of the law, they set up, we're going to catch this woman in adultery, Jesus is going to have to stone her, or he's going to have to break the law, one of the two. And Jesus tells her, your accusers have left. And instead of throwing a rock at you, I'm just going to tell you, go and sin no more. And then we have Nicodemus. A lot of times we think of the... Uh, Jesus being really harsh with the Pharisees. And he was harsh with a lot of them. He was harsh with them because they needed that harshness. But with Nicodemus, Nicodemus said, hey, what do I need to do? And Jesus said, you need to be born again. You need new life in the Spirit. And then if you can, turn with me over to Matthew 12. Jesus has healed some people. The Pharisees are mad about it because that's what they do. And in verse 15 it says, Jesus withdrew from there and many followed him. He healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I am chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. 
He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. And check out verse 20 here. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, man, I'm I'm just feeling so fragile. I just don't. I can't take getting yelled at. I can't take hearing that there's a whole list of rules that I'm not upholding, that I need to be, and there's no hope for me. I can't take that. And you're really close to just throwing it all away. And you've been told all your life that a church is a place for judgment. If that's you, first I just want to say I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry that that's been your experience. And I also want you to know that there's a great high priest who sees you, and he sees you with the fragileness of a bruised reed, and he says, I'm not, I'm not going to break this. He sees a smoldering wick with just a tiny bit of smoke coming up. And he says, I'm not going to extinguish that. I'm going to be gentle. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're you're tired and you're weary, come and follow me. We have a gentle teacher. He knows you're weak. He's felt the weight of that weakness. Would you come and follow him? Back in Hebrews. I know it's a lot of page turning today. We have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us because he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet he was without sin. And then the next verse. Because of this great high priest who's chosen by God, who is the holy sacrifice, who is our gentle teacher, because of him... Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I like having the elements of communion set in front of us. Because I can't, while I'm preaching, look out at you without remembering that the body of Christ was broken and the blood of Christ was spilt. And hopefully you can't look at the screen to worship, to to sing to God. You can't look at the preacher without looking through the sacrifice of Christ. And this great high priest laid his life down so we can with confidence approach the throne of God knowing that we will receive grace and mercy because of his sacrifice. Because of what he's done. And so this morning we're going to remember what he's done. I'm, I'm going to ask at this time if the worship team and those helping distribute the elements would come forward. Jesus is your great high priest. His, his reign as priest has no end. The scope of the sacrifice has no boundary. You are not outside of this. He can save to the uttermost. Jesus, when he was 
the night he was being betrayed, he told his disciples, he said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. I want you, when you break the bread, to remember my body was broken for you. When you drink from the cup, remember my blood was poured out for a new covenant. It was poured out so your sins could be forgiven. And here we are, close to 2,000 years later, still remembering this and still being able to cry out and have our sins forgiven and still able to approach with confidence the throne of God and and knowing that we're going to get grace and mercy because of this sacrifice. This is not the Westchester table. This is the Lord's table. If you're not a member here, but you're a member of the body of Christ through faith in Jesus, we invite you to take communion with us this morning. We ask that you And only you know this, if your sins are dealt with. If you're here and you're sitting on sin that's not dealt with God, please just pass it by. Don't don't partake. Wait till the next time we have communion. Uh, And and please hold the bread and the cup until uh, all have been served and we'll partake together.